Shalom, Salam, and welcome to the History of the Land of Israel podcast. I am Shayel Ben Ephraim, and I welcome you to the one podcast with the guts to survey the most provocative historical narrative in the world. In the last episode, we discussed the fascinating Gesher Benot Yaakov find. That was evidence that our Homo erectus forefathers mastered fire earlier than believed. That place served as home base for generations of fire-using hunter-gatherers. Their prime came towards the end of the lower Paleolithic period. The tools they used were what is known as Acheulean technology. That was dominant in the later years of Homo erectus. However, they were also used by the earliest Homo sapiens. As mentioned, the signature Acheulean tool was the hand axe. These axes were manufactured using a more or less standardized process over hundreds of thousands of years. Since the land of Israel is the home of the big monotheistic religions, it is only fitting that the first figurative art and possibly religious item comes from there. In 1981, an archaeological team from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem found a pebble. Yep, a pebble. But this one was special. Sure, it was tiny. It was about one and a half inches long, one inch wide, and less than an inch thick. But it was also a super old pebble. Archaeologists estimate it's about 250,000 to 280,000 years old. What makes this tiny piece of rock special? Well, there are clear signs it had been intentionally shaped. There are grooves on the rock that appear to have been made by an implement. As we know, our Homo erectus friends were running rampant in the land at that time. Therefore, it's almost certain one of them tried to shape the pebble. This part is the clear and indisputable one. What we don't know, and can only guess, is the intention behind shaping it. The archaeologists behind the dig believed the pebble was shaped like a human female. It was dubbed the Venus of Brechat Ram, after the pool, Brecha means pool in Hebrew, from which it was taken in the Golan Heights. Others have argued the rock may have had a more functional purpose. However, most believe it had a symbolic element of some kind. In other words, it was made to be looked at. Still, not everyone agrees the so-called Venus is an intentional creation. One archaeologist has speculated that it was, quote, someone passing the time with a stone tool and a pebble. One of my Twitter followers responded to a picture of it similarly, saying, and I quote, it looks like a turd. Honestly, I do see it. But turd or not, we need to keep in mind that the cognitive process of Homo erectus at the time was different than our own. Sadly, we don't know exactly what kind of difference this was. Therefore, our interpretation could be unrelated to how they processed symbolism and or representation. But if the pebble is indeed an artistic representation, that's an astonishing fact. Representation is a window into the innermost thought process of an individual. We usually associate the earliest figurative art with Homo sapiens and cave drawings. However, the earliest example of that is dated to 73,000 years ago at most. Meanwhile, the Venus of Brechat Ram is dated 200,000 years earlier and was likely crafted by Homo erectus. 
Now, imagining that we share our obsession with the female form and religious devotion with our long-gone ancestors is a seductive idea. But we will never know what was in the minds of our friends, like Shlomo Erectus, when this was crafted. Other findings of the period do not show representational art. However, the hand axes found near the Ma'ayan Baruch Kibbutz from a similar time frame are of a high enough quality to allow for artistic expression. Indeed, if you compare them to hand axes found in the Revadim quarry from at least 200,000 years earlier, so 480,000 years ago, the advance in crafting technology is quite startling. But while this proves an ability to think pragmatically, we can't know for certain if they had the cognitive capacity for abstract thinking, and certainly not if they had one for religious devotion. Now, maybe it's the romantic in me, but I prefer to imagine these early ancestors of ours with a deep and complex inner emotional world, but perhaps without the ability to fully express it. If I'm right, the Venus of Brichat Ram is the start of our long journey of self-expression and may even have been some sort of early fertility goddess. If I'm wrong, it may just be a turd. Now, so far, we've only dealt with one branch of the hominid family, our immediate ancestors. That tree extends from Homo habilis over two million years ago to Homo erectus. As we know, this branch would eventually produce Homo sapiens, or, you know, us. But like most human family trees, this one is a mess. The hominin family tree branched off several times. Some branches were successful. Others were failed experiments. The most important diversions away from those that led to Homo sapiens were the Denisovans and, most famously by far, the Neanderthals. Unfortunately, the Denisovans lived in East Asia and are therefore irrelevant to our story. However, the Neanderthals are surprisingly relevant indeed. They had a presence in the land of Israel, perhaps even were dominant in the land of Israel, and are therefore worthy of discussion. This branch of hominin has been a source of fascination for us for over a century. Because of the interest popular culture has taken in them, there are many myths that you must address in order to get to the truth. Now, Neanderthal remains were first found in Belgium and Gibraltar in 1830 and 1848, respectively. But with minimal knowledge at the time, they were not recognized as a different species. That changed in 1856, when remains were found in the Neander Valley of Germany. That's also why they're named Neanderthals. Now, the original working name for the species was a little bit less flattering. It was Homo stupidus. Yes, you heard that right. That nicely reflects the common perception of Neanderthals as our dumb, brutish ancestors. However, none of that is true. First, this species was not stupid at all. We will discuss their abilities in detail. Second, the Neanderthals weren't really our forefathers. Instead, they're our long-extinct cousins. They split off from Homo heidelbergensis, an offshoot of Homo erectus, at some point. So what's the real story of Neanderthals? Now, 
We don't know everything we want to know about them, but we know a lot more about Neanderthals than any other extinct hominid species. We've found many remains, including complete skeletons, and our fascination with them has guaranteed interest and funding to further exploration and analysis. Now, so here's what we know. Neanderthals looked pretty similar to us. However, there are some notable differences. They tended to possess a more prominent nose and strong double-arched brow ridges, giving them a pretty distinctive appearance. Neanderthals also typically had no chin to speak of. In addition, their bodies were relatively short and stocky. Women stood about five foot tall, males about five foot five. Why were there uh, such differences between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals? We don't exactly know. Evolution is a tricky process, and the exact way in which Neanderthals split from our tree isn't exactly understood. However, the changes are believed to have to do with the colder environment of Northern Europe, which was their original hunting ground. For example, their large and wide nose may have acted to moisten and warm the air that they breathed. That was not something our Homo erectus forefathers would have needed in Africa. Another example is the stocky nature of their bodies. Shorter limbs and bodies reduced skin exposure and allowed them to maintain heat more efficiently. At least that's how the theory goes. So when did these chinless wonders branch off from our family tree? The exact timing is unclear, but it occurred somewhere between 500,000 and 800,000 years ago. Early Neanderthals lived primarily in Western Europe and are therefore not part of our story. But about 130,000 years ago, they began to spread into more expansive territories. Their, further, their highest concentration remained in Western Europe, but they reached as far afield as Siberia. Now, you can tell from their preferred habitat, the species was more comfortable in the cold than the heat. But as the climate got colder during the Ice Age, and as they became more robust and adaptable, Neanderthals spread to hotter climates. As you may have guessed, that included the Neolithic land of Israel. So, misunderstandings about Neanderthals have clouded our understanding from the very start. For decades, we believed Neanderthals were shuffling, hunchbacked morons. The idea was encouraged by an early skeleton found in France. The frame was hunched, and that individual had no teeth, leading to some of the stereotypes you might see about Neanderthals. However, that analysis misses the point. The individual in question was an elderly man, maybe even 40, which is ancient for the time. He could barely walk. That means he probably had help moving around, and he certainly needed it because he had a disabled right hip and at least one broken back vertebrae, possibly more. That is where the myth of the hunchbacked Neanderthal comes from. But a healthy Neanderthal specimen would walk upright. This guy was just very sick and old. The fact that he survived this long means that he was taken care of. For example... It appears he digested solids regularly, despite having no teeth. 
Now, considering that he probably did not have access to a blender, there is one clear explanation. Someone chewed his food for him. It's not very sanitary, but it's indeed a sign of caring and a sign of community. This hunchback dude was also buried with respect and a certain amount of ritual. The lead researcher examining the remains, William Rendu, explained. If they had just wanted to get rid of this man's body, they could have left it outdoors in nature, where carnivores would have quickly eaten it up. Instead, they dug a hole more than a meter deep, using the tools that they had, such as stone, wood, or pieces of bone. The tight packing of the ground around the gravesite offers further clues into the amount of effort that went into this burial. All this shows that they took a long time to do something that was not essential to their survival, but done simply to protect the body of this man. What this shows is that our cousins most likely shared our need for social cohesion and our ability for empathy. For example, remains found in southern France of Neanderthals indicate careful burial rituals, indicating an emotional tie between group members. And just like us, Neanderthals changed their burial rites over time. A fascinating example from our region is a burial from the Kabara cave, dated to about 60,000 years ago. The corpse's position there suggests the body was buried before rigor mortis set in. In other words, a fresh burial. The skull of the Neanderthal is gone. That may or may not have been intentional. If it was intentional, they may have kept the skull of their ancestors. That's a custom that, as we will see, pops up in several ancient Levantine cultures. All this suggests complexity of interaction in a culture where life and death had genuine emotional and spiritual meaning. Now, we don't know for sure if Neanderthals had linguistic capacity. After all, vocal cords do not usually survive over such long periods of time. But in my opinion, there's no doubt that they did. There's similar physiology to ours, including the structure of the mouth and throat suggest similar vocal cords. Their tight social communities would involve communication. While their language might seem primitive to us, we have no reason to assume it was inferior to Homo sapiens of around the same time. And for all we know, it might have been fairly sophisticated. Another sign that Neanderthals weren't dumb at all is the size of their brains. Now, brain size isn't directly an indication of intelligence, but there is a correlation. The size of the brain ranged from at least 1,200 centimeters squared to 1,750 centimeters squared. That's actually larger than the modern average. Our brains are about 1,300 square centimeters. So a Neanderthal likely had a bigger brain than you or me. That large brain allowed them to create sophisticated tools. 300,000 years ago, Neanderthals developed the Lavalois technique. Now, this is kind of brilliant. It involved creating useful shapes of stone that they could carry with them. So when a Neanderthal went on a long journey, they could take those useful shapes and create tools based on necessity using prefabricated parts. Basically, these guys had a traveling DIY kit. Now, these tools were so practical that Neanderthals spread using them throughout Europe and Asia. They also mastered fire 200,000 years ago, which gave them many of the same advantages it provided for Homo erectus. So 
for a while, they really competed with Homo erectus for dominance. Now, despite the fact that we had similarities, there were also some differences. We've always preferred to keep distance from our prey, especially when it's dangerous. That's why at first we used spears, then we moved on to bows and arrows, then we moved on to guns, sniper rifles, tanks, jets, drones, satellites, you name it. Our thing is killing things from far away. But Neanderthals like to move in close. That requires bravery and a specialty in close combat. We know this because Neanderthal prey tends to have sizable blunt bone trauma from smashing. Meanwhile, our forefathers killed more elegantly. Another difference was that meat played a smaller part of our diet, while for Neanderthals it was dominant. That would end up being a major advantage to Homo sapiens in the long term. So, enough about Neanderthals in general. How about their presence in Israel? The first findings of Neanderthals are in Shukba. That's a sleepy Arab town located 17 miles from the modern city of Ramallah. In 1924, it was home to barely 500 residents. That year, a British archaeological team discovered a site of immense importance. We will discover another aspect of that find when we get to Natufian culture, but as for now, the site produced the first recognizable Neanderthals remains in the Levant. Dorothy Garrod, the team's archaeologist, found human tools and animal bones cemented in the cave deposits. Alongside them was a prominent human molar tooth. Due to the advanced nature of the technology of the uh, Neanderthals there and the southern location, Garrett assumed the tooth and tools belonged to Homo sapiens and not Neanderthals. However, the tooth was very large, larger than what we expect for a Homo sapien. So speculation abounded that it belonged to a Neanderthal. A study published in 2021 confirmed the tooth belonged to one. It appears the owner was a Neanderthal age 7 to 12 at the time of death. And listen, I'm no dentist, but it seems to have a nasty cavity going right through the middle. The findings from the Shukba cave illustrate a few things about Neanderthals that we did not know. First, they reached much further south than previously assumed. Indeed, if they made it all the way to Shukba, they probably also reached Africa, although we haven't found any remains over there. That is very far from their happy hunting grounds in Germany and France. The tools next to that tooth were also a revelation. They were pretty advanced artifacts, the kind we tend to associate with Homo sapiens. Now, we can't conclusively determine that Neanderthals left those and used those. They may have remained from other hominins, although none of their traces were found in the cave. But if they were Neanderthal products, the tools indicate high cognitive abilities that are almost indistinguishable from our ancestors. So that brings us to the relationship between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. Now, the two existed in the land of Israel, possibly at the same time, but certainly around the same time. Uh, They may have indeed occupied the territory simultaneously. The relations between these two groups have been the subject of a good deal of controversy. Were they friends? Were they competitors? Were they foes? The evidence speaks to certain commonalities and even intimacy between the communities. 
the existence of Neanderthal remains very close to Homo sapiens and Homo erectus um, is accompanied by similar tools. In other words, they appear to have had very parallel lifestyles, at least in the Levant. And that means they got close to each other. Indeed, they got very close. As you may already know, Homo sapiens and Neanderthals interbred regularly. The most common theory is that a lot of this inter-hominin fornification took place in the Middle East 50 to 60,000 years ago. So some of it would definitely have been in the land of Israel. However, later discoveries have shown that our forefathers were doing the nasty with Neanderthals wherever they coexisted. For example, scientists have examined the earliest Homo sapien DNA available. It came from Bulgaria, belonging to Homo sapiens from 45,000 years ago. Evidence shows that they had a pretty good amount of Neanderthal genes in them, indicating that they had done so separately from their Middle East equivalents. As a result, today, the average non-African person has 2% Neanderthal ancestry, while the individuals examined from Bulgaria 45,000 years ago had a bit more at levels of 3.4 to 3.8 Neanderthal ancestry. So, where they existed in the same place, they definitely interbred. Now, what about Neanderthals specifically in the land of Israel? Well, the migration patterns from Western Europe to the Levant are not fully understood. What we do know about that process is it started about 100,000 years ago. The spread occurred during the last glacial period, which is the end of the Ice Age. That era started about 115,000 years ago and ended as recently as 11,000 years ago. And that's not a coincidence. The cold suited the Neanderthals and at times placed the Homo sapiens on the defensive. Amazingly, our Western European cousins seem to have become the dominant hominid in the southern Levant at one point. In fact, they may have completely replaced Homo erectus societies that had dwelled there around 80,000 years ago. It's not completely clear why. Initially, scientists believed this was the result of climate change. The most substantial theory is that a short-term event, not long-term climate change, cleared out Homo erectus from Israel. Most likely, it was a volcano eruption that allowed Neanderthals to move in and claim the advantage taking over the hunting ground of our Homo erectus ancestors. Now, that story seems counterintuitive. We consider ourselves to be adaptively superior to Neanderthals. After all, we're still here, and they're not. But on a local level, we suffered setbacks and defeats to Neanderthals and in general. So, how did this happen? How did the Neanderthals actually take over the land of Israel? An interesting paper by John J. Shea gives what I find to be a plausible explanation of what occurred. The Levant was never able to support a large hunter-gatherer population. There simply wasn't enough woodland and game to sustain populations, as large as they were in parts of Europe, Africa, or Asia. According to Shea, the climate at the time could have supported a maximum of, say, 6,400 individuals. How do we know? Well, we can look at data for modern hunter-gatherer societies that dwell in similar environments. But 
Keep in mind that today's tribes have access to technology their Stone Age equivalents did not. That includes traps, nets, storage capabilities, and technological aids to processing otherwise unpalatable foods. Therefore, the number that existed in the Levant at the time was almost certainly far lower than 6,400, since they would not have had the conditions that modern hunter-gatherers do. That means the people living there were quite vulnerable to extinction events. Indeed, Homo erectus in the Levant was particularly vulnerable. Its diet was dependent on large mammals. Those mammals started to decline as the climate changed and as they were overhunted. Correspondingly, Homo erectus numbers started to decline. Luckily for us, our forefathers would later adopt a wider diet that allowed them to adapt and thrive. But that took some time. If so, around 75,000 years ago, Homo erectus appeared to disappear from Israel and the surrounding areas. They only return approximately 45,000 years later. And in that, by then, they were Homo sapiens and not Homo erectus. Even then, the population remained sparse for a while. And the coming of Homo sapiens coincides with the disappearance of our Neanderthal cousins. So what happened 75,000 years ago? that helped the Neanderthals come in and take over. It appears global temperatures dropped quite a bit at this time. And keep in mind, this is already an ice age, but it gets worse. The most likely reason is the eruption of Mount Toba in Indonesia. Sure, Indonesia is far away, but that event seems to have caused a volcanic winter, blocking the sunlight and lowering temperatures. Unfortunately, our region wasn't spared. It soon became colder and drier, a lot more like Central Asia than the Middle East. The environmental change may have been enough to push the small and vulnerable Homo erectus population to extinction. Fading cultures often leave behind signs of stress and trauma. In this case, it appears that more complex funeral rites and artistic craft based on seashells were an attempt to deal with that. As death and desolation enveloped the last Homo erectus in the land of Israel, they went over to arts and crafts in order to deal with it. As we have discussed, the land of Israel is incredibly unique because it serves as the only land bridge between Africa and Asia. Due to its proximity to both it has some of the flora and fauna that you find in Asia and Africa. So new populations from either moving into the Middle East did not have to adjust much to survive. That made it easy for new populations to move in and replace old ones. Therefore, it wasn't long before Neanderthals moved in to take over the hunting grounds evacuated by the dying Homo erectus. They remained in the land of Israel until they were in turn uh, extinct about 45,000 years ago. So we're talking about a 30,000-year window in which Neanderthals were either the only or the primary uh, population in the area. As the Neanderthal population weakened and disappeared 45,000 years ago, the country was not left empty. Soon, Homo sapiens arrived from Africa and took over for the first time. 
They developed a culture known as the Emiran, and we will discuss that in a future episode. Now, not everyone agrees with the replacement thesis. The replacement thesis uh, is the one that says we had Homo erectus. They were replaced by Neanderthals. Neanderthals were replaced by Homo sapiens. Some believe the different um, strands coexisted. For example, Hovers writes, Local extinction of Neanderthals during the Middle Paleolithic cannot be simplistically interpreted as evidence for the extinction of a whole lineage in the region. Indeed, there is evidence of coexistence. Interbreeding indicates certainly the groups met and were familiar with each other. They also used similar tools, which may indicate mutual influence. However, there's no doubt that Neanderthals dominated the area for 30,000 years, and it may just be that there were no Homo erectus in the region, at least for part of that era. The minority, if they remained, likely submitted and was bred out of existence. So, Neanderthals remained in the land of Israel right up until their extinction. Some of the last Neanderthals were probably there, maybe even the last groups. And so their, their extinction also occurred in our area. So why did it happen? What was the process? We don't actually know the exact answer. All we know for sure is that around 60,000 years ago, so about 15,000 years into their presence in Israel, their numbers began to decline. The remains of later Neanderthals indicate serious interbreeding and the kind of genetic weakening that we expect when interbreeding occurs. When uh, population numbers are low for just about any species, they start to interbreed. Usually when species are healthy, they try to avoid it for obvious reasons. The last sorry remains of Neanderthals in desperate interbred shape are found from about 40,000 years ago, and none have been found ever since. There are several theories to explain this extinction. According to one, the main culprit is our ancestors. Homo sapiens probably drifted into Europe on occasion 200,000 years ago. However, they did not begin to settle there in large numbers until 45,000 years ago. 5,000 years later, they were the only hominids on the continent. That does not seem like a coincidence. It's almost certain that their arrival was bad news for the Neanderthals. It has been speculated that our ancestors committed genocide against our cousins. It obviously wouldn't have been organized if it happened. But the theory is Homo sapiens moved into the hunting grounds of Neanderthals and killed them off to enjoy access to the resources. On some level, that makes sense because our diets were very similar, eating both meat and vegetation. Eventually, once their hunting grounds were taken, according to the genocide theory, their societies were shattered, Neanderthals disappeared as they were unable to protect themselves. Another theory, closely related, but I think more realistic, is that Homo sapiens simply outcompeted Neanderthals for resources, making life more difficult. There's certainly truth to that. We had broader palates than the Neanderthals and basically ate whatever was around. Homo sapiens also came from hotter climates and could better adjust to the approaching end of the Ice Age. We also developed better tools. The sewing needle, for example, helped us adjust with climate-appropriate clothing. The bow and arrow helped hunt small, mobile game when larger mammals were missing. 
But in my opinion, the evidence doesn't support direct human destruction of Neanderthals. There are no signs of pitched battles or large uh, organized killings or anything like that. We like to put ourselves at the center of every story, but we may not have been the primary driver of extinction, especially when we consider that the decline started 60,000 years ago before Homo sapiens left Africa. Extreme climate changes punctuated the last 100,000 years of Neanderthal existence. As a result, flora and fauna in various habitats changed rapidly. Neanderthal extinction occurred during a Heinrich event. Now, that may sound like some sort of, sort of German house party, but that is the scientific name for the phenomenon whereby groups of icebergs break off from glaciers. The significant addition of water to the North Atlantic may cause substantial climate change. There have been several cases where a Heinrich event caused societies to collapse and others to rise. So how did this work? Well, Neanderthals specialized in hunting large Ice Age animals, but sometimes being too specialized isn't a good thing. When climates change, some of the animals went extinct or their numbers dwindled. Neanderthals didn't die off immediately when that happened. Instead, they became weaker and more vulnerable. That's where Homo sapiens became very dangerous. They could move in and take over from Neanderthals when they were weak. At that point, they probably interbred with the remaining vulnerable Neanderthals, who wanted probably to avoid breeding with other Neanderthals for genetic reasons. They became progressively lower in numbers and disappeared. Disease probably played a part as well. Homo sapiens may have carried diseases from Africa that Neanderthals were not suited to fighting off. This is likely a complementary explanation rather than a full one for extinction. After all, by that time, Neanderthals were heavily inbred. That would have lowered their ability to deal with an outbreak of disease. So as the world approached the end of the Ice Ages, finally ending about 11,000 years ago, the dice were heavily loaded in Homo sapiens' favor. They took the Levant as soon as Neanderthals began to disappear. Once they occupied it, those pesky Homo sapiens would never let the land of Israel go. But as we know, they soon turned on each other and began to fight for it. We will talk about the cultures that emerged in Homo sapien reoccupied land of Israel in the next episode. So subscribe now to the Land of Israel podcast. Remember to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and join the conversation. See you next time on the History of the Land of Israel podcast.